Welcome to London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. Although a majority of Americans favor police reform, most don't believe that it can ever happen. Conservatives think attempts to reform the police have ruined morale and that the police can't do their jobs. And liberals argue that street crime can't be reduced unless poverty is alleviated. In his latest book, Neil Gross, a professor of sociology at Colby College in Maine, argues that real change is possible. And he writes about three unusual police departments where traditional policing was replaced with new models that focus on equity, reconciliation, and ultimately the preservation of life. The book, Walk the Walk, How Three Police Chiefs Defied the Odds and Changed Cop Culture, is published by Metropolitan Books, a division of Henry Holt and Company, and brings Neil Gross to our show now. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Didn't you work for a short time as a police officer in Berkeley, California? I did many years ago in the early 90s. Uh, I had always wanted to go into law enforcement uh, and work part time. Well, yeah, that's a good question. I didn't have any cops in my family. Hmm. Um, but, you know, I grew up in a time when the crime rate was really high in, in the Bay Area, in California. Uh, and I wanted to um, do my part to make the community safer. Uh, that was a that's actually a common common theme, as you might imagine, among cops. Many of our, them start off with idealistic goals, and then I kind of had a secondary goal. I was um, thinking a lot about how to make the justice system better and more equitable, working from the inside, and and so that that was my ambition through through high school. So went to went to college, like I said, worked part time uh, for. A couple of different police agencies, uh, graduated from, from Berkeley and then joined the force uh, and went to the police academy and served for about 11 months on the streets. Well, Berkeley is a liberal college town. How does it compare to the adjacent city of Oakland and to other parts of California in regard to law enforcement? You know, I think things have um, have changed in uh, the, the whole region over the years um, since when I was uh, a cop. Um, certainly back then, uh, Berkeley uh, was a more it, it is a more uh, liberal college town for sure. Uh, had a had a very high crime rate uh, uh, at the time, um, and you know Berkeley had a reputation as a very progressive department back in the early years of the 20th century. One of the leading figures in police reform, a guy named uh, August Vollmer, was the police chief there and you know, tried to hire uh, uh, get cops with more college education. And, and and parts of that legacy remained in place while I was part of the department. But at the same time. Uh, there were also parts of the department that had a very different orientation, um, a, a, a much more aggressive uh, kind of street cop culture that I think spilled over partly from Oakland uh, and partly from just the, the general surround in California at the time. So uh, I think both of those were, were present in Berkeley at the time. You opened your book with a description of an ordinary traffic stop that you conducted. Why do you think the incident escalated? Mm. Yeah, this is something that's really stuck with me over the years as I've as I've uh, thought about um, my my brief time in law enforcement and about policing today. Uh, this was a, a traffic stop I conducted um, late at night and uh, in the spring. Uh, routine traffic violation. Somebody just went through a light. Um, there were no cars around. It was empty streets, uh, so it was no big deal. I tried to pull them over, um, and the car. Uh, uh, wouldn't stop for a couple blocks. Mm -hmm. Ended up uh, finally stopping the car, and the the passenger got out and uh, wouldn't get back in the car. And you know, we were told, we were taught in the police academy and in field training that you know, the rule with car stops is that they're dangerous. You have to even keep for the, minor infractions. 
even for minor infractions that you never know when you're going to, you know, pull over someone who's, um, who's looking for a fight or who's got a weapon. And I didn't think that I'd have any, no reason to think this person would do any of those things, but they, the passenger wouldn't get back in the car. Uh, anyway, a uh, uh, sort of melee ensued and uh, uh, became kind of a, an all out brawl. Uh, and, you know, at the, at the end of it, as I tell them in the book, I had to you know, draw my draw my weapon. And there was a decision about whether to whether to shoot or not to shoot. Um, and it stuck with me. It, it, it kind of escalated out of control. And, and I think there are a couple of factors at play. Um, you know, I was, I was a really young cop. Uh, I was trained in an academy that taught me to be pretty uh, worried about car stops uh, to the point of a kind of paranoia. Uh, I don't think I escalated or de-escalated the situation uh, as well as I should have. Um, and at the same time, I think there was a lot of uh, tension, as there is still now, uh, between um, the, the uh, community in Berkeley and the police force. The uh, two um, young men that I stopped were both black, I'm white. Uh, and I think that tension, especially this was uh, not long after the uh, Rodney King, uh, the trials for the uh, police officers who'd, who'd uh, beaten Rodney King. So I think those tensions were were very much present in, in the community at the time. If you could do it differently, if you could do it again today, would you handle it differently? Well, I'd like to think that I would. You know, one when, when, uh, thing I've, I've come to realize in the course of the research for my, my this, this book, Walk the Walk, uh, is that... Uh, we shouldn't be hiring cops who are so young, you know, as higher as 21, uh, you know, 21, 22, 23. It's, it's just too young to be able to deal with most uh, serious situations in a, in a fully responsible manner. And I think I was as, as responsible as a young person could have been. Um, but, you know, certainly I would have slowed down. I would have uh, done more work to uh, deescalate. I think I would have used more explanation. Uh, I told the passenger to get back in the car. He said, why? Uh, he said, because I'm stopping. I said, because I'm stopping this car. That wasn't a very uh, lengthy explanation. And, and I think that, you know, in general, I would have uh, done more work to insert some more time and distance between myself and, and the, both the passenger and the driver. You know, some stops are, are going to escalate. You can't you can't do anything about that. But I think I certainly could have done more work. And I think well, the department could have done more work. How aware are police officers over the racial disparities? Um, you know, I think that um, th there's no question now that uh, you know police officers are 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 well aware um, of of the tensions between the police uh, and um, uh, various communities. Uh, they're aware of racial disparities in in stops and arrests. I think that's that's true. Uh, no, no question about that. Um, I think that. Uh, what varies by departments and really by officers is the degree to which they take it seriously, take it as a responsibility to try to uh, address that mistrust, uh, try to reduce those disparities, and uh, try to you know build better relationships. Uh, you know, some departments are are trying to do that, uh, not enough. Mm -hmm. uh, others are just sort of uh, you know trying to trying to get by uh, and uh, and um, and keep the status quo going. Uh, and you know, one thing that I was really surprised to learn in my research is that. You know, there's, there's lots of different agencies, and while, while many are, are uh, not doing as well as they could, there are others that are doing a pretty decent job and that we should all be learning from. Why did you decide to leave policing and study sociology? Mm. I think there were a couple of factors. I mean, one— I mean, do uh, you think that the sociology interest grew out of the fact that you had been a, a police officer, or would you have done that anyway? Yeah, no, I think it partially did grow out of that. I, I you know, I, I was very aware uh, of how much I was being influenced by uh, by cop culture with its kind of us versus them mentality and uh, and um, the the 
idea that uh, you know should never take flack from anyone on the street, those kinds of things. And, and I felt myself becoming more kind of sucked into that. And I think I, I became curious as to why and to the kind of power that, that culture can have over someone's life. Uh, so yeah, I think that helped to, to draw me into uh, sociology. I think that was a big part of the story. So you, for this book, you researched three police departments in different parts of the country, Stockton, California, Longmont, Colorado, and LaGrange, Georgia. Why those three? Were you looking specifically for police departments that had tried new approaches? Yeah, the, the origins of this book come out of a, a class that I started teaching. I, I, I moved to Colby College uh, up here in Maine in 2015, and I started teaching a class about, about the police. And you know, for that class, we read lots of books about the, the serious problems with policing from racial disparities of the kinds you mentioned to, um, to police brutality, to um, you know, problems with interrogation and, and uh, militarization, those kinds of things. And students would come out of the class you know, pretty, pretty depressed feeling like, you know, there's nothing we can do. Uh, and you know, sometimes they would ask me, like, are there examples of police departments that are actually uh, doing things right, doing things better? And uh, when I first started this project, I didn't really know of any. Um, so I, I began asking around. I talked to lots of lots of experts, lots of phone calls, uh, looked at lots of different data sources uh, to try to look at uh, for agencies that, that had really made significant gains and not just gains in uh, in policy, not just improvements in policy, but but where they'd really tried to alter the culture, and and these three, uh, Stockton, Longmont, and Lagrange are, are three that that kind of fell out of that exercise. I think they're not the only three I could have chosen. There are others around the country uh, that are making headway as well. But but these three are they're very different kinds of agencies, uh, very different kinds of cities, different politics, uh, and different uh, problems that the police face. So it seemed like a good mix uh, to look at. But um, do you think it would have been different if you'd included a large city? I think that's an important question. You know, the, the biggest city that I looked at is Stockton, which is about 320,000 uh, an hour uh, east of the San Francisco Bay Area. So it's a, a mid-sized city. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, one thing that's important to bear in mind uh, is that there are something like 18,000 local police departments in the U.S., and 90% of them are, are, are quite small. So it's true that you know, large cities like New York, Chicago, L.A., uh, Boston, uh, uh, provide policing services to a, a large number of Americans, many, many millions. Uh, but there are many, many that are uh, quite a bit smaller than any of the cities that I that I studied. You know, that said, um, uh, you know, one question that I was thinking about in the course of this research was how well any of the developments in these three cities would scale up uh, in a place like New York at I think they would uh, with some modification. But, um, you know, I, I chose these places because that's where the action was happening. Did you have problems getting cooperation from these three police departments? Were you able to ride along on calls and view body camera footage? I got full cooperation from all the departments. In fact, that was one of the conditions uh, for studying these agencies. Uh, initially, I wanted to study uh, another one, larger, uh, New Orleans, which uh, had made some real gains as well as a result of a, a federal consent decree that was put in place after, um, after Katrina. Uh, but they wouldn't provide the kind of full access that the other places did. They wanted to provide a much more curated version of what the department was up to. I think it, they were trying to get out from under the uh, under the consent decree. Uh, but in these three agencies, yeah, they, they, offered, they let me ride with whoever I wanted. They sent me body cam footage, um, police report information, uh, sent me whatever data I requested. You know, part of it was uh, just good social science. I wanted to make sure I really understood what was happening there. 
But part of it was I wanted to provide just regular readers with a sense for what policing and what police reform really looks like on the ground, because I think our picture of it is a little bit uh, is a little bit different than um, than the reality. So let's look at these three cities. Stockton is a mid-sized city in central California. Didn't the financial crisis force it to declare bankruptcy? How did that affect the police department? It did. Stockton was one of the first uh, uh, cities to declare bankruptcy as a result of the financial crisis. It's, you know, it's a blue collar town. Have a uh, high crime rate? High crime rate, one of the uh, highest in California. Uh, That's been true historically. Uh, Most of it driven by uh, gang related violence. and uh, and the 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 bankruptcy hit the city hard. The department has about four hundred had about four hundred something cops. Um, it had to lay off about a uh, hundred officers uh, or uh, force them into early retirement. So its its ranks were seriously diminished. Uh, and uh, not every city that you know, experienced a, a bump in crime during the Great Recession, but you know, places that that lost a lot of officers. Uh, did now, there? There is a relationship between the number of officers that are out on the street uh, and the the crime rate, and there's quite good uh, ex- uh, data to suggest that um, that every ten officers, uh, additional ten officers that a city uh, deploys on average. Uh, prevents about one homicide a year. Hmm. So as the number of officers in Stockton's force uh, declined, the homicide rate uh, shot up, and um, uh, it was a real time of crisis for the city. Eric Jones had risen through the ranks from beat cop to police chief of Stockton. How did he approach leading a police department with so many personnel and financial problems? Well, Jones initially, uh, who, by the way, he, he went to the academy just one year after I did. Um, you know, his initial goal wasn't wasn't police reform. Uh, he, he took the helm when when the crime rate was incredibly high. And the demand from the community, as everyone can understand, was, you know, do whatever you can to to bring that crime rate down. And of course, the police aren't the only uh, entity either part of the city or or in the uh, in civil society that can help reduce crime rates. But but they're certainly part of that story. Well, so he implemented initial... what was called the ceasefire program. What was that? Exactly. Exactly. So that's a model that originated out of Boston. Uh, and the idea is you, uh, you 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 bring in and start having communications with the people in your community who are the most likely to be either the victims of, uh, of a shooting or the perpetrators of a shooting. And these are mostly young men who are deeply involved in uh, in in, uh, in crime. In, in gangs. Um, and the notion is that you bring them in and you say, look, we're, we're watching you. We, we don't want anything to happen to you. We don't want you to do anything. Know that if you uh, do something wrong, uh, we're going to be all over you. And also know that if you want it, we'll help you step out of this, this life of crime that you've made for yourself. So we'll help you get a GED. We'll help you, help you with job placement, help your family with social services, that kind of thing. Um, they did, did this in Boston in the 90s, pretty successful in bringing down the, the homicide rate there. So Jones tried it in Stockton, and he found that he got very little cooperation because people didn't trust the cops. Uh, Stockton PD had a long history of uh, of pretty brutal uh, and and uh, racist policing, and so there's tremendous distrust between the community and uh, and the police force, and and that kept people from coming in. They thought that the cops were there to trick them into confessing or something. My guest on today's London Lopit at Large is Neil Gross, whose latest book is Walk the Walk, How Three Police Chiefs Defy the Odds and Change Cop Culture. It's from Metropolitan Books, uh, a division of Henry Holt. And this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. What's procedural justice? Isn't it rooted in the work of Max Weber, or the, the German social scientist? Mm. 
Yep. So procedural justice is what Eric Jones eventually uh, turned to. Um, so that, that's the idea that's been developed by uh, some, some psychologists um, that uh, people are more likely to obey the law uh, and to cooperate with authorities if they believe that the law is treating them fairly. If they believe that the, that the procedures that cops and judges and others uh, are following are, are fair and fair and equitable. Uh, this was a philosophy that had been around for a while, uh, was rooted in the work of, uh, as you said, uh, Max Weber, the, the German social scientist who's best known for the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. Um, but he wrote a lot about the idea of legitimacy, and that's really what procedural justice is about. Anyway, Eric Jones heard about it when he was trying to get this Operation Ceasefire up and running. Uh, and he thought, well, maybe this is a way, maybe this is a way to rebuild some of that trust if we can uh, make policing in Stockton uh, more fair, more equitable, and communicate more to citizens that it's fair and equitable. Maybe they'll start to trust us more. And so he uh, developed a whole training program around procedural justice. Other departments were doing this too. Chicago tried it. Minneapolis tried it. Didn't work very well there. But, but Jones did, did more than others. Many on his force were skeptical of the procedural justice training. Did they feel it was wrong or, or simply unnecessary? Because didn't a trainer win over a skeptical student by acknowledging his negative feelings and offering to let him leave the class? Yeah, you know, cops are, are really skeptical at change. Uh, there's, there's um, uh, you know, always pushback against uh, anything new, uh, or at least there's often pushback against anything new. Uh, and many of the officers in Stockton uh, thought that procedural justice was just, um, you know, some administrative, um, you know, silliness that they had to, the had, had to go through. The police union in Stockton has historically been pretty conservative. I will say that in, in other places like Minneapolis, a uh, very conservative police union um, blocked procedural justice efforts, was really resistant to them. In Stockton, the union ended up getting behind those efforts, um, in large part because they had a really good relationship with Eric Jones. They, they trusted him. He uh, worked really hard uh, in the course of his tenure to proceed slowly and incrementally to win the trust of his officers. They felt that he acted fairly toward them, got them the uh, the equipment they needed, was, was fair-minded with officer discipline. And so when it became clear that he was all in on procedural justice, the union ended up supporting him as well. And that made a difference in, in terms of um, officers accepting it. It's just the way the department was supposed to run. Not everyone did, of course. There were still lots of people who resisted. And, and to this day, there are Stockton cops who you know think that it's a very silly thing. But over the course of about five years, uh, it made a real dent in the policing of Stockton. And it was its impacts were measurable uh, in, in surveys of residents uh, and in a whole variety of other metrics. And within a few years, then California Attorney General Kamala Harris decided to make procedural justice training available to officers throughout the state. Uh, had she been influenced by the example of Stockton? Yeah, Stockton was seen as a, a sort of leader in these efforts. You know, I will say um, Jones did a lot of things and the kinds of training that uh, that that the California DOJ made available to officers everywhere incorporated some of what Stockton did, but but not all of it. Um, you know, in addition to having a, a, a three day training uh, session, which was spaced out over the course of months so that officers would have a chance to really think about the material. Um, uh, Jones uh, built a procedural justice into uh, uh, into uh, uh, meetings that cops would have with citizens. So he'd gather uh, groups of citizens together. But trust five, building workshops. Trust building works. Yeah, five citizens 
a cop at a table. They, the citizens would talk about their experiences with the police. Uh, the, the cops would share their experiences. That was those were important and difficult conversations. Uh, and Jones also did a tremendous amount of uh, talking with the community. Um, uh, so he built a community advisory board that gave him a lot of input on policy. They were very critical of the police, uh, and he tried to filter that into what he did. And that was part of the idea of giving citizens a voice, not just on the street in interactions with cops, but uh, in the community as well. Uh, and uh, more than anything, he just he proceeded very steadily and surely. You know, it's, it's really common in policing. Some new idea about how to reform things will, will come up. Chiefs will adopt it. They put it into practice. And then kind of nothing happens. It's just all window dressing. But he made a real effort, unlike in other places, to, to build procedural justice into a lot of what the department did. And again, it didn't overwhelmingly, it didn't change Stockton overnight. Uh, it's not a policing nirvana, as I say in the book. Uh, but it got uh, better. And and that was a little different than what the California DOJ did. It's, it's not just a question of, here's a few trainings. It's a question of, can you build this new philosophy into every aspect of the police department's operations? Okay, let's move on to Longmont, Colorado. What's distinctive about that town? Mm. Longmont's Did a beautiful. Mike Butler, the Longmont police chief, introduce a program of restorative justice. What does that mean? Yeah, he did. Restorative justice is an alternative to arrest and incarceration. Um, it's not always an alternative to arrest, but it's it's always an alternative to incarceration. Um, so uh, Longmont's about a hundred thousand. Uh, it's just outside uh, Boulder. It's a um, uh, high plains town. Uh, and uh, and Butler, you know, took the helm there uh, in the mid '90s after serving for for many years um, in the the Boulder Police Department, and he was really uh, concerned about mass incarceration. Um, jo- Jones in Stockton eventually would be as well, but um, Butler was was there. Uh, that, that concern was present for him much earlier. Uh, worried about mass incarceration in the U.S. in general, uh, about it in Colorado, uh, and so with some community activists, he got behind restorative justice. And the idea is. You know, can you take people who've committed offenses uh, and uh, especially minor offenses, and instead of incarcerating them, can you bring them together in a room if the victims of the offense are willing, uh, have them uh, have the victims explain the harm that's been done to them, uh, build some education component into the whole process, uh, make sure, have the uh, offenders come to a meaningful apology, have them offer restitution. Uh, you know, can you? Uh, find some way to make that situation, uh, that harm, uh, pr- produce some kind of repair to that harm. Good evidence, uh, experimental evidence out of the UK that for uh, some crimes anyway, restorative justice produces lower recidivism rates, lower rates of reoffending, lower rates of PTSD in victims. And uh, and Butler thought this was, this was a great idea. So he developed a program so that uh, minor offenders in Longmont, for example, kids who shoplift something, uh, if the cops pick them up, they don't have to arrest them they can steer them directly into a restorative justice uh, program. And it's been pretty successful in Lama. It, it took some convincing of the cops. Uh, there are a lot of cops who were skeptical about it, but, uh, but it was one component of a whole series of changes he made to rebuild the ethos of that department. If the perpetrators apologize and make restitution, are they exempt from prosecution? Um, yes, if they follow through with the entire uh, uh, procedural justice process, they are. Procedural justice works differently in different places. Uh, in, in some communities, uh, it's something that occurs uh, after arrest, uh, and prosecutors might divert an offender into a restorative justice process. In some places, it works 
um, as part of a, a process after incarceration, uh, as part of a parole process. So it can it, you can do restorative justice at different phases uh, of the um, uh, of a case. But in Longmont, they they do it very early um, as a way to steer people out of the criminal justice system. And as I say, it's been very successful with the the six thousand or so people they put through it over the years. Did the, the, any of the victims refuse to participate in this restorative justice process? Yeah, you know, the, the restorative justice um, it works well for some people, and it doesn't work well for others, and it works perhaps better for some offenses than for others. You know, there certainly are uh, crimes, uh, for example, those uh, around domestic violence, uh, sexual assault, where you know, there are some people who advocate for restorative justice who say, yeah, even, even there it could work. I think there's a lot of reason to be skeptical about that. There's a lot of reason to think that those kinds of offenses um, uh, uh, it, to bring the victim and offender together would simply re-traumatize the victim. And I think Mike Butler realized uh, clearly there are some people, some offenses that are so serious and some people um, who at a, a moment in their lives, at least, are, are too violent to be released uh, out in the community on their own recognizance. Um, so uh, th there's certainly Longmont police still make uh, uh, arrests uh, for serious offenses. Uh, but I think the program uh, worked for, for those that were uh, of a more minor nature. And of course, you know, an individual might be opposed to it. Uh, and not want to, a victim uh, and not, might want not might not want to take part in the process. Isn't this modeled on Native American principles? Yeah, those are some of its roots. Um, it's got a, a wide range of uh, sort of philosophical and, and even theological roots. I think the thing that really attracted Mike Butler to it was uh, the idea that everyone's got uh, a potential as a human. He's, he's a, a very um, very spiritual guy. Uh, Mike Butler, uh, and you know, he was concerned that if you if you put people in 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 cells, in prison cells, uh, in in cages, that um, that you that you've squandered or squashed that potential. And, and even if they've committed uh, an offense, they they still have potential and still have the chance to remake and rebuild their lives. Uh, so he thought this was a, a a good public policy in the sense that it might uh, be much less costly for the state. Might less produ might produce lower rates of recidivism, but he also thought it was just good on a spiritual basis to um, give people uh, the freedom uh, if, if they can if they can and maybe give them a chance to turn their lives around. Well, how did police officers react when uh, Butler first introduced restorative justice? Did they think this was a good idea? Were they resistant you know, at, at the beginning? You know, you you can imagine how most cops would react to this. I think if I'd heard about this when I was a cop, I I, I think I would have thought, yeah, this is a joke. Uh, and, um, you know, you, you, you commit a crime and, and you're brought together and given some education and told to apologize. Uh, I think that's how a lot of the cops in, in Longmont felt about it. Um, but you know, did that change? Was, it did change. Uh, you know, some of the cops who were felt strongly about that left the department. That was fine with Mike. Um, but he continued to make the case for it. And, and over the years, it's, it's gained uh, in acceptance. A lot of people have have, have witnessed that a lot of cops have, have witnessed these processes unfold and, and they've seen uh, the change that it can make, not just for juveniles, but for um, for adult offenders as well. How did the recidivism rate for those who participate compare to more traditional approaches? So I think in a program like this, it's 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 always worth taking the recidivism rates with a, 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 that, that are um, presented by the, the programs with a grain of salt. Um, you know, the, 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 they were lower uh, by, by the measures that the Longmont Department and its community partners use. 
you know, at the same time, uh, it's a little hard to know like what those rates would have been. You know, you, you, you've, you've got people who are going through restorative justice. The people who might not have benefited from restorative justice were never put in the program in the first place. So you're kind of comparing apples and oranges. It, you can only really test that out with a true experiment. Like I said, those experiments have been done in the UK and they found uh, substantially lower recidivism rates. They haven't really done a true experiment in Longmont, uh, you know, randomly assign offenders to restorative justice or arrest and incarceration to see what the differences are in outcomes. Um, but you know, in general, the rates seem like they're they're lower. Well, you say the UK has adopted it. What about other police departments in the United States? Have any others used restorative justice? Certainly in many school police departments, um, you know, many schools now uh, are um, talking more and more about restorative justice as, as part of their uh, school disciplinary procedures. So you'll often find uh, school police departments or school resource officers who are you know, using some version of restorative justice. There's still tons and tons of arrests that are made uh, in, in classrooms, um, and uh, that those numbers should you know, clearly go way, 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 way down. Um, but I think that's one of the main places where you see this happening. Um, you know, I know of other police departments that are interested in restorative justice, and certainly there are uh, district attorney's offices that are pursuing restorative justice. But, you know, Laman is, is relatively rare in steering people, uh, steering cases out of the system even before arrest. And wasn't Chief Butler also innovative in introducing a harm reduction approach to drug use? Yeah, I think early on he recognized that the the, the war on drugs uh, was a failure, um, and that uh, a better approach might be to make sure that those who are um, dealing with issues of, of addiction uh, are, are are given treatment, and uh, you know, and uh, that. Efforts are undertaken to make sure that they cause as little harm to themselves and others as possible. You know, the department there didn't stop all of its drug arrests uh, for, you know, it would still go after uh, narcotics traffickers, for example, serious narcotics traffickers. Uh, but in general, uh, yeah, the department there adopted uh, more of a, of a model where they would try to cooperate um, again, with with community partners uh, to um, get people access to uh, clean needles and, and that kind of thing, and, and to make fewer arrests for for drug possession. So that was another part of uh, what my, my Butler uh, tried to do. You're listening to London Lopit at Large on WBAI New York ninety nine point five FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. It's a small brotherhood, part of thin blue line. Cause we're always on the edge Of what is wrong and what is right We're called the sheepdogs Because we protect the herd I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Neil Gross. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Walk the Walk, How Three Police Chiefs Defy the Odds and Change Cop Culture. Just go online to give2wbai.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and then the number 2wbai.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of London Lopez at Large, and we thank you very much. And return now to uh, Neil Gross. Again, the, the title of the book, Walk the Walk, How Three Police Chiefs Defy the Odds and Change Cop Culture. Mr. Gross is a former police officer in Berkeley, California, a professor of sociology at Colby College. 
and um, he's a f frequent contributor to the New York Times. He published two previous books, taught at Harvard and Princeton. Uh, let's go to the third town that you write about. Um, now, the, the, the third one, uh, LaGrange, Georgia, is it fair to say is the most conservative politically? It is. Um, so LaGrange is, is a town of about 30,000, uh, an hour outside of Atlanta, uh, not too far from the Alabama state line. Um, it is more conservative politically, I would say, than, than the other places. Um, it's, it, it was interesting over the course of my research there. You know, Georgia has obviously become or is becoming has become a purple state. Uh, and I, I saw that political evolution even over the course of my time doing research there. Um, but it is more conservative. Uh, you know, it's it's the, demographically it's about half white, half black. But um, weren't there very few African-Americans on the police force relative to that general population? Yeah, there were. Uh, and I think that's one of its you know, areas where the department is not fared uh, very well, uh, certainly as compared to a place like Atlanta. Um, so, yeah, only about 15 percent of the cops there are uh, are are black, uh, which is uh, well, well below their population share. Is it possible for mostly white force to effectively police minority areas? Uh, statistics indicate, not necessarily in LaGrange, that black Americans are killed by police at more than twice the rate of white Americans. So I, I think the evidence on this uh, from from social science is becoming increasingly clear. You know, I think for a long time it was uh, we, we all had the suspicion that uh, and and lots of people just had the the intuition that um, you know a police force that was more representative of the communities that it serves uh, would would be a better police force. Um, but for a variety of reasons, it's a little hard to prove that with social science statistics or to you know, make a very strong uh, find find very strong evidence for it. I think now the evidence is, is pretty clear. Um, so yeah, when 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 departments um, are uh, are more representative of the communities they serve in terms of uh, in terms of race and ethnicity, in terms of gender, uh, also I'll add in terms of politics. There's some interesting research on that. Uh, you know, the evidence shows that on average, uh, use of force goes down, arrests for minor offenses go down, uh, stops. Uh, for minor offenses go down. Um, so uh, having a representative force is important. You know, that said. Uh, you know, departments have to start where they are. Uh, you know, we need police reform today, uh, and whatever uh, department's current demographic composition, it's it's got to um, it's got to undertake steps to improve, and that's certainly uh, what Lagrange, uh, Georgia, tried to do. Isn't Georgia one of the states that prohibits collective bargaining for police officers? Did the lack of uh, police unions in Lagrange make it easier for Lou Deckmar, the the police chief, to fire officers who committed ethical breaches or policy infractions? Yeah, police unions are, are obviously a, a major sticking point in, in reform. Uh, you know, departments that are successful in reform have to either uh, get the unions on their side or, or make the unions get out of the way. Uh, in uh, in Lagrange, uh, this guy you mentioned, Lou Deckmar, it wasn't from Georgia. He was born in New Jersey, uh, grew up in in Oregon, and then uh, became a cop and got into law enforcement in Wyoming. Hmm. Uh, when he first moved to Lagrange, uh, you know, he found a department that was really a mess um, in terms of training, uh, in terms of uh, injustice that they were kind of committing, um, and uh, and he was able to revamp the agency. And yes, the fact that um, th there's no collective bargaining for police uh, in Georgia 
made a difference. Uh, it meant that um, it wasn't that he could just fire cops at whim, obviously, uh, but it meant that um, there weren't as many uh, uh, bureaucratic hoops that he had to follow to to um, to uh, ask cops to leave, uh, force cops to leave who weren't following the policy. What was his experience in the Hope in the Cities workshop? Yeah, well, that was this fairly transformative event in the life of of Lagrange. Um, you know, this is a community that, um, that, as I said, is, is evolved in, in lots of directions over the years. Uh, you know, Troop County, where, where Lagrange is located, uh, uh, was the fifth largest slaveholding county in the state of Georgia. So long, long history uh, of uh, of uh, of slavery with a, a long a long tail. Um, uh, and uh, starting in the early uh, uh, mid twenty. 15s or so, um, a bunch of folks there, uh, civic leaders, uh, got the idea that uh, that you know the the town could really stand uh, some some work to bridge the gap uh, between white and black residents. That there was a level of, of mistrust there uh, that was uh, uh, perhaps not as strong as in some places, but uh, but still strong and, and needed to be overcome. So they uh, they coordinated with a group called Hope in the Cities. This is a Richmond, Virginia-based nonprofit. Uh, and, um, and the group, uh, that nonprofit, sent to LaGrange uh, some folks to run workshops. And, and these were, these were um, uh, efforts at, uh, at evoking, having, having hard conversations. They'd, they'd bring an equal number of white and black residents together, uh, and they'd have you know, uh, brutally honest conversations about their experiences in the community. Um, and kind of their model was, too often, racial matters go undiscussed um, for fear of provoking offense. Uh, but if we if we have conversations in a in a in a reasonable fashion, uh, then maybe you know people can understand exactly uh, what it's like uh, to um, to uh, live or one on one side or another of a racial divide. And those conversations were transformative for the community, um, but they were also transformative for Lou Deckmar, who took part in them and. Uh, came out of them with a renewed commitment. He'd always been interested in civil rights, but I would say a renewed commitment to uh, doing whatever he could to to uh, improve the culture of the department there. Well, do you think he was more effective because he wasn't raised in the South or were they, were they more suspicious of him? I think that um, the fact that he wasn't raised in the South, I, I think was part of uh, why he was able to be an effective change maker. Um, uh, it, it sometimes is the case that uh, that you need an officer who is, is from a community, knows it you know, thoroughly in and out, uh, uh, because that person's going to have good relationships with everybody, and, um, and and officers and community members will trust him. But sometimes you need an outsider. Uh, you need someone who um, brings new energy, new life uh, to an organization, and that was that was Dakmari taken part in law enforcement and many different agencies, uh, had studied what worked and what didn't. And so he was able to bring that into LaGrange. Uh, I think some of the cops, you know, maybe didn't trust him uh, because of uh, his his background. But, you know, uh, after spending many decades there, I think a lot of people, a lot of the cops, they didn't really know his background. Um, he just seemed to them, he was he was just chief uh, and they, they, they respected the heck out of him. You write about a 1940 incident involving a 16-year-old named Austin Calloway. Uh, despite the fact that Callaway was kidnapped from a jail cell and shot to death, why didn't the police department at that time open an investigation into his death? Well, that's an important question. I mean, the, the short answer um, clearly is is uh, is he racism. Um, uh, yes, Callaway was black. Uh, uh, yeah, I think the short answer is racism. You know, there, th this 
story ends up being quite significant uh, for for Chief Dakmar, um, as I describe in the book, because he apologized. Uh, he ends up apologizing for his department's role in in um, in Callaway's death, and and you know that role. There's a lot of uncertainty about about that role. Um, you know, there's lots of evidence from that time period that um, has has vanished. Lots of police records, if they were kept, have vanished. Uh, if there was an investigation, there's no material about it. So. You know, I, I try in the book to do a, a, a little bit of historical digging to maybe figure out, uh, you know, who is involved. There, there are uh, there are community groups in Lagrange uh, that have been doing a lot more of this research, and I, I kind of touch on uh, some of the work that they did. But what was important for Dekmar was uh, when he found out about this, and he didn't know about it for a long time. Uh, he thought, well, you know, if if I stand up in front of the community and say. You know, this is we're a different police organization than we were in 1940, but it's the same. It's still Lagrange PD. You know, what if what if I say, look, I, you know, we take responsibility for what happened, and we're going to assure our, you know, ensure that uh, this never happens again to anyone in Lagrange. No one else is treated this way. He thought that would be um, a transformative moment for the department and for the community, and and in many respects, it was. And Dekmar also published an op-ed piece that criticized the Minneapolis police for their actions, leading to George Floyd's death. Did other police officials speak up publicly about that? Uh, many did. Um, I think anyone anyone with a conscience did. Um, I think that uh, that um, you know his his response was you know he was um, he was of course horrified. He's I, I would say he's not a very emotional person, um, but he's uh, you know he's, he seemed to be uh, certainly very horrified uh, and um, you know, thought it was quite clear that it was a criminal act. And and but he also pointed out that uh, it, it was a result uh, not just of the individual choices of. Of Derek Chauvin and the officers around him, but but also a function of the culture of Minneapolis PD, uh, and he thought that you know something like that wouldn't have happened in an agency that really put a high priority on the preservation of life uh, and on um, and on uh, just respect in conversations with citizens. Uh, that was something that he'd really tried to instill in his cops in Lagrange, and I have to say I was um, I was shocked over the, over the time that I've spent there with uh, just. Um, how much uh, respect and uh, following rules is taken seriously in that agency. And it's not just that, you know, they were kind of showing it off for me, uh, you know, me coming in a few times. I mean, it spent a bunch of time there, uh, many, many conversations, uh, and talked quite frequently with the cops there. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different uh, beast of an agency than other places. And, and that's because of uh, Dekmar's work. So you, you can change police departments. It just it takes real effort. Neil Gross is our guest today on Leonard Lopez at Large here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. His book that we're discussing is Walk the Walk, How Three Police Chiefs Defy the Odds and Change Cop Culture. Um, in those three examples, did change take a long time to implement? And were, were those three cities just simply lucky in finding and hiring good leaders? Yeah, I think those are those are both important questions. Uh, on time, uh, yeah, uh, you know, unfortunately, change in policing is is slow. You know, police departments are are big, uh, big ships with with long histories, and and turning them uh, takes some time. You know, oftentimes uh, we, for perfectly uh, understandable reasons, uh, when a, a, a horrible incident occurs, we you know, expect a police department to turn itself around uh, right away. We you know, bring in a police chief who promises reform, and uh, and they say we're gonna we're gonna fix it. 
Uh, and then, you know, we, we give them two or three years. And, and if the fixes haven't been made, uh, another incident occurs, we, we boot them out and you know, install a new police chief. Um, the unfortunate fact is that, you know, police departments are, are slow to change. And all these agencies, it was, it was that kind of incremental work uh, that was so important, uh, building trust with cops, building trust with the community, listening to what the community really wants, what its desires are for policing, uh, layering on reforms one at a time and, and kind of slowly altering that culture so that cops don't kind of rebel with the change uh, and so that you know you don't uh, utterly alienate the community um so in these agencies it, it did take some time and you know getting leaders like uh, like Deckmar and Jones and and uh, and Mike Butler um, is challenging but we could be doing much more to build a, a cadre of police leaders um, who are you know deeply committed to reform who understand uh, what it takes uh, and who are willing and able to install uh, folks down lower in the, the the chain of command, from from sergeants up to you know lieutenants and captains, who are who are also going to be fully on board with a, a reform agenda. And we're not, I think, we're not doing nearly enough in this country to develop that kind of officer core among among uh, within police departments. Did other police departments try to implement those kinds of changes and fail? There have been lots of places that have tried to implement, you know, everything from from um, from procedural justice to uh, just getting cops to follow the rules more. Uh, and very often those procedures do fail. Um, uh, th those efforts do fail. You know, from my point of view, it's uh, sometimes it's a function of uh, like external factors that you know maybe are, are a little harder to control. Like, uh, you know, is, is there an economic crisis uh, befalling a, a community uh, at a time when police reform is being tried, and does that does that keep things from uh, from changing? But uh, you know, I think what really stands out about the three places I studied is uh, just this uh, this deep and lengthy uh, commitment on the part of the folks at the top to to really try things differently, to experiment, uh, and to um, uh, and to uh, build those experiments into what they did on a, on a daily basis. You know, I remember a conversation with Eric Jones um, not long before he retired, and he. He told me that he was just really tired. Uh, that that you know, his, his being chief for ten years, um, he found it, uh, of course, very important work. But um, it's it's uh, running a police department uh, in itself uh, is an exhausting business. But uh, putting in all the energy to really produce these changes and reforms, um, it just takes a tremendous amount of commitment. And um, I, I think that's that's what we need. I think I think the time is now to, as I said, build up a core of. Uh, of uh, supervisors and, and chiefs uh, in American policing who are willing to to do that kind of work to give us the policing that that we all that we all desire and, and need. Well, what happened after these chiefs left, retired, or moved on? Were their departments able to sustain the changes? It's a little hard to tell um, because um, many of them have left relatively recently. Um, they they all now have retired. Um, and you know, I haven't I haven't uh, gone back to do systematic research in the places. Um, I know that um, my sense is that in um, in some of the communities, uh, uh, in one of the communities anyway, uh, Longmont. Uh, you know, I was very concerned while I was there. I, I thought that all the work that Mike Butler was doing was terrific, um, but I was worried that uh, his second in command uh, and folks even a little bit lower down in the the, the hierarchy weren't as fully on board with his agenda uh, as he thought that he was, as he thought that they were. Um, so I was worried about his impending retirement. And I remember he told me, you know, I think I think we're all set. It's going to be good. Uh, and, and I think, uh, you know, from what I've heard from cops um, who are still there um, uh, after he's left, you know, I, I think there has been some backsliding. 
Um, I haven't heard the same thing about Stockton. Uh, things there seem to be uh, running more as they expected. Uh, and uh, I, I haven't heard anything about backsliding in, in LaGrange. So you, you, can, you can build an agency uh, with good procedures, good policies, good culture, um, but it, it's not necessarily going to stay that way in the future unless you put in place people who are below you who are fully on board with, uh, with your ideas. Well, we see that right here in New York where not all the police officers agree on how to do things. Um, Absolutely. Can change be implemented on a federal level or only locally? Policing is, in this country, obviously mostly a local affair. Um, uh, you know, 18,000 or some odd police departments. Um, at the national level, right now, um, there, there seems to be uh, almost zero chance that the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act is going to be passed. Uh, there are some things that, that can, be done, can be done and have been done um, by the Biden administration by virtue of um, executive orders. Um, for example, um, you know, they've, he's uh, uh, passed an executive order or issued an executive order uh, that uh, uh, ties uh, grant funds for police departments to uh, their uh, uh, efforts that they undertake to reduce the use of no-knock warrants, just as, as one example. So there's some leverage that can be applied federally. Certainly, uh, the Department of Justice can uh, and has ramped up its investigations, uh, so-called pattern and practice investigations of departments that are um, you know, engaged in uh, what seems to be uh, patterns of unconstitutional policing. So the Department of Justice can can do that. Um, you know, my perspective is that th those are useful tools, uh, but in the absence of uh, real um, you know, federal ability to, to mandate the kinds of changes that I think people are hoping for, um, it's really up to local departments and states to make those changes. And, and sometimes I'll also say, sometimes the um, changes that local departments make are can be uh, better. They can be better tailored to local circumstances. Um, you know, sometimes the, the federal government could come in and impose a, a stock set of requirements for a department that you know may or may not perfectly suit local circumstances. So uh, police reform at the federal level seems mostly blocked now. Um, I have some hope for for um, piecemeal parts of it, but uh, at the local level, um, I think we can we can be doing a lot more to emulate departments like the one that I. I'd write about. Well, to win votes, politicians often position themselves as tough on crime. Well, what's the best way to propose the kinds of changes you recommend without becoming vulnerable to political attack? You know, I, I think that we have lost the space for conversation in this country uh, around uh, you know pragmatic and uh, and meaningful uh, police reform. Um, you know, it's it's the conversation around policing um, has obviously become incredibly polarized, uh, and I think the the argument that one has to make, and I believe it's a true argument, uh, is that police reform, when done right, is a powerful tool for public safety. Right? If you can, you know. Uh, uh, do police reform that uh, you know, doesn't um, uh, curtail um, important tasks that police uh, have to carry out, uh, but that does do work to build trust with the community, uh, to build equity and respect into how police interact with citizens, uh, to um, make sure that real uh, supervision and training is a part of uh, policing, uh, to, to build accountability into law enforcement, um, then, then you can have a police department that does the things that cops are supposed to do, um, but uh, but that also enhances trust with the citizens. And that 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 there's good evidence that that brings down the crime rate. It makes people want to comply with the law more. And when crimes occur, it makes people more willing to share information, which means that cases can be cleared uh, and that increases levels of deterrence. So I think there's 
there's a lot of need in this country for a, a, a kind of center left middle ground space on policing. And that, that, you know, I say one of the reasons I wrote this book was to try to reinvigorate that conversation, but it's a tough conversation to get going um, in an era when, um, you know, you, you're kind of on the left or on the right about it. And that, that middle space is, uh, is, is left uh, absent. I've been speaking with Neil Gross, professor of sociology at Colby College in Maine, about his latest book, Walk the Walk, How Three Police Chiefs Defied the Odds and Changed Cop Culture, which is published by Metropolitan Books, a division of Henry Holt and Company. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you so much for having me. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to Deb Friedman for all of her help in preparing today's show and to our executive producer, Kaziah Glow, and our audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, for all of the invaluable work they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the station coming to you at 99.5 FM. We're going through a really rough time uh, economically, and we're not alone. Public broadcasting has been suffering, but BAI, which is just a local station, has been hit particularly hard. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give in the number 2 WBAI.org because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Linda Thopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book that we've been discussing, Walk the Walk, How Three Police Chiefs Defied the Odds and Changed Cop Culture by Neil Gross. So why not make that call right now, 212-209-2950, or go online to WBAI, go online to give to WBAI.org, give and then the number two, WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for $10, $15, $20, $25 a month, however much you feel comfortable with. It allows us to plan for the future, and you can do that as long as you feel comfortable doing it. And we'll say thank you if you do that uh, with a WBAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way... We hope you'll call right now because BAI relies totally on listener donations, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. We're the only station on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener sponsored. Please help us stay alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. Again, one more time, the number in case you didn't write it down, 212-209-2950. Or you can go online to give to WBAI.org. Give the number to WBAI.org. We'll see you again next week. Have a great weekend.